Love that legit scandals music, right? <laughs> hey, welcome. So glad that you're here this morning. This is the last installment of this series that we started on Easter called Scandals. What we've been doing is looking at different stories from the Bible and allowing that to maybe change our perspective on things. Now, these stories from the Bible that we've been looking at could be ripped from the headlines. If you were uh, to bring up your news app on a Sunday morning, you know, you'd be like, whoa, you know, what's going on here? Maybe it was, if you got the newspaper, if you get your news that way, uh, maybe it's on the front page of the paper. These are the type of headlines and the type of maybe controversial things and maybe even some what scandalous things that we see in Scripture. And I just believe God wants to continue to transform us and change us and mold us, and that includes in our minds and in our hearts as we become more like Jesus. And so today is the one that I think everyone thought of when we started this series, and everyone kept asking me about in the lobby or during the week, was like, hey, are you gonna, is one of the scandals gonna be this one? And so it's John chapter eight. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn there. As always, you are welcome to follow along with your phone, uh, tablet, iPad, um, download the Oakwood app, go to sermon notes, and all the notes and all the scriptures are there. But John chapter 8, we want you to engage the Word of God. So get out your Bible, get out your phone, get out something so you can put your eyes on the Word this morning. John chapter 8, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11. So this is the uh, story uh, that everyone's been waiting for, right? And so this would be the headline. If you were to read the headline, this is what it would say. Man intervenes, saves adulterous woman from execution. Ooh. A man intervenes and saves an adulterous woman. So that says something right there, right? From execution. Like she's going to lose her life. And so uh, let's get into the passage this morning. John chapter 8, uh, beginning with verse 1, says this But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and at dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. Uh, notice in Scripture it always says when the teacher or the rabbi was about to teach, they would always sit down. It's opposite of what we do today. So in Jesus' day, the teacher or the rabbi would sit and everyone else would stand to listen. Now that's evidenced in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, where it says Jesus went up on the mountainside and he sat down and he began teaching his disciples, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. All of those things, okay, that was always from a sitting position. And so that's what he's doing. He's assuming the role of rabbi and teacher right here once again in the temple courts before all of the people. And, of course, this is ticking off the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the teachers of the law. So we get to verse 3. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman who was caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group. So before all of those that assembled to hear Jesus teach... And they said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. And in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? And they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing Jesus. But Jesus bent down and he started to write on the ground with his finger. And when they kept on questioning him, so they, they keep coming at him, he straightened up and he said to them, let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And then again, he stooped back down and wrote on the ground. And at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. And Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, 
she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. First thing we can learn from this passage is that this this story blends a lovely note of grace when Jesus says, neither do I condemn you, with the challenge to God's high standards. Go now and leave your life of sin. It's a wonderful presentation, really, of the whole of the gospel. Jesus came and died to forgive us and to set us free from the bondage of sin. So let's break this down and understand this and all the complexities of it in a deeper way. The first thing we encounter here is her sin, her shame, and her sentence. Her sin was obviously that she was caught, and it says here in Scripture, and that's, that's accurate in the Greek, brought into our English, very accurate. It says that she was actually caught in the act of adultery. Now, we know from the beginning of the context of this chapter that it was in the morning that Jesus was in the temple court. So this is something that they probably had caught her with, or maybe, you know, it's one of those things she had woke up in bed next to this, to this guy in the morning. But uh, regardless, they bring her sin out, and with that sin comes shame because it's done in the public eye, Right? She's, this isn't something they handle behind closed doors. It's not something that they keep on the lowdown. They're going to keep this quiet. You know, we're going to let anyone know what she's done. No, they bring it out. They bring it out, not only that, they bring it out in the temple courts. But let's, let's go to God's house. And let's bring, let's bring it out there in front of everyone. And, of course, there's her sin, but there's then now this shame that is brought with it. I know there's been so many artists through the years that have painted pictures of this scene. And it's interesting to see how every artist captures the shame on this woman's face. But then there was also her sentence. And I have to tell you this morning, they were right. According to the law of Moses in the Old Testament, specifically found in Leviticus chapter 20, and also again found in Deuteronomy chapter 22, it says that if someone is caught in adultery, that they should be put to get, that they should be put to death. It doesn't necessarily get specific about how to put them to death, but stoning oftentimes is a way that they would put people to death when they had broken God's law. Yes, she had sin and she had shame and she had a sentence. But there was also this plan, this ploy, and then there became this problem. You see, the plan was not actually to make it really, it really wasn't about her. I mean, it was, but it wasn't. This was, again, just like we had been studying the last few weeks and even last week with Jesus talking to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. There was this plan put in place to try to trap Jesus, to, to try to get him to mix his words in a certain way, to try to get him to say something a certain way where it would actually, it would actually be something that would maybe incriminate him or make him feel like he's going against the law of God. And, and they've been doing this for quite some time. And that was really like the plan was to try to get him to do that. And the ploy was that we're actually going to bring this woman out. We're actually going to put her here in front of everyone. We're going we're gonna to reference the law of God. And then we're going to keep asking Jesus, what would you say that we should do? And, and I want you to notice there, um, as, you, as you get down there in verse 6, where they're using it as a trap in order to do that. He reaches down, he writes with his finger. And then look at 7, it says, when they kept on questioning him. 
So this wasn't like they, they threw, her, threw her out there and said, hey, you know, and then they waited. No, they just kept badgering him. Can you picture the scene? They keep badgering the Son of God. Jesus Christ, they keep badgering him with, you know, well, should we put her to death? And, you know, who do you, who, who do you think you are, Jesus? I mean, come on. You know, you know what the law of Moses says. And they're just, they're just agitating him. They're coming at him. And they're trying to, again, to trap him. That was the, the plan and, and the ploy. But then you encounter the problem. It, it's interesting to see Jesus' reaction here. Because Jesus kind of seems like he ignores them. I mean, verse 6 says that they were, they were using this as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus did what? He bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. And you always wonder. You get to this point, you're like, what did Jesus write? But it didn't stop there, folks. Look down in verse 8. It says, again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. So he did it once. He stood up and made a statement. And then he went back down to the ground to write in the ground again. And this is where the problem comes up. Now, the first thing was when you read this passage, you, have, you ever thought, where's the guy? Right? I mean, it takes two to tangle. Have you ever read that passage thought, wait, wait a second. They're calling this woman out, right? This adulterous woman. And they bring her before, hey, where's the guy? Where's the adulterous man that was involved in this situation? And, and that's totally open to speculation. You read Bible scholars, and some of them believe that maybe he had some clout in the community. So they were going to handle his sinfulness a different way. You know, she was just a, a cheap, a cheap, you know, lady that was just, you know, sleeping around, and maybe, maybe she was a homewrecker, you know, and that was just her reputation. So they're going to bring, you know, this, this really bad, you know, evil into sinfulness type of woman, and, and you know, she is going around, and, and she's seduced to that guy. I mean, we don't know exactly, but it's interesting because I think that the man should be there right in the middle of it, taking a sentence too. By the way, it doesn't say in the Old Testament that you just bring the woman out that committed adultery says that you bring them both out. But even beyond that, you get to wonder here, what was Jesus writing? Some scholars believe that maybe he was writing the man's name. Other people think that he was writing scripture, writing his thoughts. But then there's a scripture from Jeremiah 17, chapter 13, in the prophecy of the Old Testament. Listen to what it says. Jeremiah 17, 13 says, Lord, you are the hope of Israel. All who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. Some scholars believe that Jesus was writing the names of all the accusers there. That he was writing their names down. You see, you think, well, they're just doing their job, right? I mean, the scripture says to, the law says to do this, and they were just following you know, the, the law, but again, do you remember the, the passage and what we talked about from last week? There were whitewashed tombs. They looked good on the outside, but inside they were full of dead man's bones. Do you remember about the, the bowl? It's kind of ooh from last week. You know, the bowl, Jesus says if you would clean the inside of the bowl, the outside would, would look good too. But, but what he accuses them of is you're trying to look good on the outside, but inside it's all messed up. Inside you don't really have a heart that's for God. Or for God's people. And you don't understand the love and the grace that God has bestowed upon his people. And so you, you, you've missed it. But regardless of what Jesus is writing, he then stands up. And he faced her. And he forgave her. And then he freed her. He faced her. He, he stood up and looked her right in the eye. As all the accusers had gone. And he forgave her. You remember how he does it? He says, well, where are those that condemn you? And, you know, where, where are they at? Is there anyone here that condemns you? And she says, 
There's, there's no one, sir. And he says, neither do I condemn you. And let's be honest, as Christians, that's sometimes what we like to just close the Bible and say, cool story. That's awesome. I mean, that's so awesome that Jesus just forgave her, right? I mean, it's just, oh, it's so, it's so great, you know. And Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. And that shows the grace of Jesus. Let's have an invitation time. Let's call everyone to Christ, you know. But that's not where the story ends. Jesus says something very critical there at the end of verse 11. Let me read the whole verse. No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Jesus loved her so much, he could not leave her to go back to the old habits and lifestyle and sinful destructive pattern that she had been living out in her life. But sometimes we as Christians want the story to end there, you know? We, we, we just think, well, that, that's the end of it. And it brings us to this, that there needs to be a balance of grace and obedience. There's this balance of grace and obedience. Now, we all know John 3.16, right? Every, everyone knows, I mean, even non-Christians a lot of times know John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And we love that, and it's so true. And then there's a verse that follows that in John uh, chapter uh, 3, verse 17 says this. It's a reminder. It says, For God did not send his Son, Jesus, into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. But what's Jesus saving the world from? Man and his sinfulness. That's what Jesus was sent into the world. He wasn't here to condemn it. He was here to walk it out of its sinfulness, to save the world through his sacrifice. But then we read a, a context in a scripture right here in the same Bible. It's found in 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. Same writer as John 3, 16 and 17. And in John, 1 John 3, 4 and 6, it says this. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. It's talking about Jesus there. And in Jesus and in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. So, so saved people don't keep on saying. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or know him. You, if we continue in this habitual pattern, it's like we haven't even seen him or know him. And so here's the danger I want to present to you this morning. We are in danger from both hope and from despair. As we walk out our Christian walk, we're in danger of both hope and despair. Let me explain exactly what I mean. We can have a false hope that says God is merciful and so I can do whatever I want to. I can do as I please. I call this the ticket for sinfulness, right? It's like, oh, I just said a cuss word. I just used the Lord's name in vain. There's enough grace to cover that. Oh, I, I, I just did this and I know that it goes directly against what Scripture tells me, but that's okay. There's enough grace to cover that. You see? It's a precarious spot and it's a very dangerous spot because it can contradicts so much of scripture but to me on a personal level I'm frustrated when I sin because I don't want to take God's grace for granted I want to remind myself that Jesus sacrificed and it wasn't just like you know a sacrifice it was a grueling whipping and beating and being hung on a cross for my sins and for your sins and then you kind of start to think and, and on a deeper level here and, and after all if sin isn't a big deal Okay, if sin isn't a big deal, why did Adam and Eve get escorted out of the garden? 
Why did they get kicked out of the garden? It's because of sin. So it must be a big deal because if they were created in the garden and then they sinned, hmm. And, and it was not a big deal. Why would God send his one and only son, Jesus, to die as a sacrifice? The one and only son of God was sent to earth to take on human form, to die as a sacrifice for our sins. You see, sometimes we can get tangled up in a false hope that says, hey, God's merciful. Do whatever, live however you want. But we can also get caught in despair. We, we can have despair that says there is no forgiveness for the sin I've committed. I've been so bad, Pastor. You have no idea what I've done. There's no way, I don't think there's, any, there's no way God can forgive me. If you know what I've done, if you know what I've been into, if you know what, I, I just don't think there's any hope for me. And yet this passage is so beautiful and so wonderful because it gives us both. It gives us the truth of the reality of the Christian life. This passage shows us the two inclinations that have to stay in balance. God calls us to a close relationship with him, and yet sin can't be in his presence. So what does that mean? We can be close to God, but sin can't be in his presence, so we can't be close to God. Aha, hang on a second. Wait, the blood of Jesus covers our sin so that we can be close to God. Christ's atonement cleanses us from our sins as we repent of them. We leave them. We turn our, away and go a different direction from them. And his spirit is working in us to do what? To transform us into Christ's likeness. And therefore, sin should ever be on the decrease in our life if we are truly walking in relationship and with a union in the Lord Jesus. It's just a fact. We're gonna watch a video clip by a guy named Shane Wood. Shane Wood is the head of the uh, graduate studies program at Ozark Christian College in Joplin, Missouri. Um, I've heard Shane speak many times. About a little over a year ago, I was in a discipleship group on Wednesday nights with a group of people and we were doing a study called Between Two Trees and when this session came, it was like, wow. I mean, he just explained it with some depth and some understanding and some conviction. But we walked out of there having an encounter and saying, man, I, I, I don't want to be the way I've been. And so I'm going to allow you to, to watch this video clip. I just really want you to tune in, listen to his words, pay attention, allow the Lord God to speak to you this morning. Cynthia Bergeau writes this. She says, once upon a time, in a not-so-far-away land, there was a kingdom of acorns nestled at the foot of a grand old oak tree. Since the citizens of this kingdom were modern, fully westernized acorns, they went about their business with purposeful energy. And since they were midlife baby boomer acorns, they engaged in a, a lot of self-help courses. There were seminars calling, called Getting All You Can Out of Your Shell, there were woundedness and recovery groups for acorns who had been bruised in their original fall from the tree. There were spas for oiling and polishing their shells and, and various acornopathic therapies to enhance longevity and well-being. But one day, in the midst of this kingdom, there suddenly appeared a little stranger filled with knots. Apparently dropped out of the blue by a passing bird, he was capless and dirty, making an immediate impression on his fellow acorns. And crouched beneath the oak tree, he stammered out a wild tale. Pointing upward at the tree, he said, We are that. Delusional thinking, obviously, the other acorns concluded. 
But one of them continued to engage him in conversation. So tell us, how would we become that tree? Well, he said, pointing downward, it has something to do with going into the ground and cracking open the shell. Insane, they responded. Totally morbid, they laughed. Why? Then we wouldn't be acorns anymore. You know, I've only had an audience laugh at me one time. One time in all of my speaking engagements and in all of the different venues, I've only had an audience laugh at me one time. Not at a joke, not at some story that I, that I told, but laugh at me one time. It was in Colorado, and I was speaking at this youth conference, about a thousand high schoolers. And, and you know, at the beginning, I kind of told some playful stories and some, some images on the screen, and we were having a good time. And then I came close to the middle of my sermon, and I said, okay, let me just go ahead and tell you exactly what I'm going to say tonight. Here's my main point. The main point of the whole sermon is stop sinning immediately. They started laughing at me. And I said, no, 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 I, I'm serious. Stop sinning. And then it got awkwardly quiet. And I, 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 I suppose that what they were thinking was, he can't be serious. I mean, as a matter of fact, I even had somebody come up to me after the sermon. And they say, like, you didn't mean, like, really actually stop sinning, did you? And I was like, oh, no, I, I meant stop sinning. You see, the reason why that's somewhat of a difficulty is because, in some sense, we think that sinning is a necessary reality of being human. That sin is part of what makes us whole. But let me ask a couple of questions in response. Should we embrace sin? I mean, should we welcome sin as a guest into our home? Should we grant sin permission to eat at our table with us? Because there's a part of that that just seems a bit strange. You know what, though? At the risk of you laughing at the screen right now, I'm going to say to you the same thing I said to the audience in Colorado. Here is my point for this session. Stop sinning. Stop sinning. I, I know that that isn't a very popular statement, especially in the evangelical circles where the seeker-sensitive movement has taken root. As a matter of fact, I was at a church uh, several years ago, and, and I was sitting in the audience, and their, their senior minister got up on stage, and he was giving announcements, and then at one point he said, Sin, hey man, it's cool. We're all sinners here. Even though I'm the preacher, I'm just like you. I'm not holier than you or, or more perfect than you. I'm just a sinner like everybody else. And I remember sitting there thinking, well, that's depressing. I mean, seriously? <laughs> that's really depressing to me. Why? I mean, because in some sense, I mean, I, I know what he was trying to do. He was trying to be relatable. He was trying to look at the person and say, Everyone is welcome here. At the foot of the cross, everyone is welcome. And listen to me, I completely agree with that. 
But in his attempt to be relatable, he actually says something quite appalling. Because really what the minister says is, even though I've been doing this Christian thing for a really long time, even more long than you've been alive, and even though I'm a freak about it because I'm the preacher, nothing about me has really changed. I'm really no different than whenever I first started. I'm not more like Jesus. I'm just, just like you. Which to me is quite depressing. Because in my moments, whenever I struggle with holiness, what gives me hope is that someday this will be different. That someday, through the transformation of the Holy Spirit, that sin will become a distant memory. That I won't always have to be an acorn. But according to this guy, apparently, that's not true. Now listen, hey, listen, I get it. I do. Christ is the only one that's perfect, not you, not me. But if we're the body of Christ, our actions shouldn't differ from his that drastically. I mean, if we're the hands and feet of Jesus, I would think that the way that we live in some sense reflects and looks a lot like him. Otherwise, what are we doing? I mean, if people can't look to us and see Christ, what game are we playing? I, I think that in our desire to embrace the Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that we don't just hold a posture that says we are willing to admit our mistakes. We've actually begun to embrace the inevitability of sin in our lives. We've begun to embrace a proclamation that sin is necessary for all humans. You see, that's not just admitting that you're going to make a mistake or that you have made mistakes. No. That's a proclamation of union. That is a declaration that you have become one with death through sin. That you have become so disciplined in the grammar of death that you could not think of living a life that didn't include sin. I'm sorry, but to that I say, stop sinning. To that I read Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 2 and verses 12 through 14. Paul says, shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase by no means. We are those who died to sin. So how can we live in it any longer? Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, obeying its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as a weapon of wickedness. Instead, offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law. You are under grace. What is Paul saying? Stop sinning. Because sin is union with death. But in Christ we have died to our sin so that we can become united with God. Or another word for that is holiness. Now, now, now hear me very clearly. Hear me very clearly. This is not a call to perfectionism. This is not a call to legalism. 
Like the goal is not for you to become a legalist because all that legalism does is produces more rules and more brokenness, not holiness. This is not a call to perfectionism. This is a call to union with Christ. This is a call to become one flesh with the Spirit. This is a call that echoes 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, where it says, Be holy as your heavenly Father is holy. This is a call to become truly human. You see, sin is not a prerequisite to be human. Sin is not a prerequisite to be human. To be human is not to sin. If that was true, then Jesus was never human. Because if to be human means to sin and Jesus never sinned, then... I mean, as a matter of fact, what we're basically saying is that Adam and Eve weren't truly human until they sinned in Genesis 3. And at that point, death is their creator and not God. No, to be, to be human is not to sin. In fact, to sin is to be less than human. To sin is to be less than human. Why? What is sin? Well, it wrestles with another question. What is sin wrestles with the question, what does it mean to be truly human? And to answer that question, we don't need to look to sin. We need to look to Christ. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 says this, For we do not have a high priest, Jesus, who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. He gets it. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he did not sin. You see, if Jesus was not truly human, then death was not truly conquered by God. Because in order for God to gain access to death, God had to become human. Yet he was without sin. You see, Jesus was without sin, and that doesn't make him less human. In fact, that makes him more human than you and I have ever truly been. The call, then, is to transform through the Spirit, because in, in Christ, we can become whole and holy. Now, I know what some of you are probably thinking right now. You're thinking, wait a minute. What in the world is this long-haired hippie talking about? Like, honestly, what is, he seems to be emphasizing our works a little bit too much. He seems to be emphasizing the things that we do. And my goodness, hasn't this professor heard Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 9, which says, It is by grace you have been saved through faith, shame. And this is not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, shame. Not by works, so that no one can boast. Oh, works. The five-letter word that in the church comes across more like a four-letter word. You know, works. We, just, ugh, we don't know what to do with works. We struggle with works. Works has this weird relationship with us where we, we want people to do works, but we don't want them to love works too much. You know what I mean? First of all, let me say this. I agree with you. We are not saved by our works. There is one work that can save us, and that is the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. But this doesn't mean that works don't matter. This doesn't mean that then what you do or what you don't do doesn't matter at all. 
Here's the problem. The problem is we don't really know what works are. We don't know their place. We don't know where they fit. Typically, when you talk to people in the church, you say like, okay, well, then where do works fit? They'll say something along the lines of, it's our way of saying thank you to God, which, which to me is kind of weird. I mean, if my wife gives me this uh, incredible gift of, of sacrificial love and says, Shane, I love you, none of you would think it wise for me to say, thanks, babe. Like, that's not a wise way to go in our marriage, and frankly, it's not a wise way to engage theology. So where do works fit? Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 is exactly right. We have been saved by grace. And grace is something that only God himself can do. Grace is a gift that only God himself can do. Grace is a movement of God toward us. But we have been saved by grace through faith. You see, faith is something that only we can do. Faith is our movement toward God because of his movement toward us. And notice what happens when God's grace moves towards our faith. We unite. We are saved by grace through faith. Or another way of saying it is we become one with God. The result is Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10. For we are God's workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus, united with God through the Spirit. But then notice what Ephesians 2.10 then says. We are created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Where do works fit? Works is birthed from our union with God. It's the natural outworking of our union with God. When grace moves towards us and we move towards God in faith, the natural outworking is works. You see, what I'm saying is this. Stop sinning. Instead, transform. Instead, become one with God. This is not a call to perfectionism. It's a call to union. It's a call to move toward God in faith because of his movement towards us in grace. Now listen, we don't begin this journey holy and perfect. We begin it broken and sinful. But because of Jesus' sacrifice, we get to follow Christ on a road paved with grace and patience. Grace and patience that lead us to our transformation, where holiness becomes our native tongue and sin becomes a distant memory. Kind of reminds me of an acorn becoming an oak tree. And I know sometimes when you walk out the Christian life, you're like, man, that seems like, whoo, that seems almost impossible. But I want to re remind you that the love and grace of Jesus Christ, he loves you so much, he can't leave you in your old life. He can't leave you in your sinfulness. He wants to transform you and make you brand new. Do you know what he was offering this woman caught in adultery? Freedom. Freedom from the bondage of her sin. And Jesus offers that. To all of us, he sacrificed to deliver us from sin. 
We can overcome sin through the power of his blood if we'll just choose to walk with him.